This morning we're going to be looking at two different chapters, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, and then we'll also, also be in the book of Luke, chapter 16, looking at the beginning of that chapter. So Matthew 13 and Luke 16, and I'm going to read Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, Father, as we think about the topic of money, uh, again this Sunday, uh, Lord, I pray that we would lean into supernatural wisdom that comes from Jesus in this regard. Father, I pray that you would let us know that our joy is at stake in this. Father, I pray that you would help us value what eternally is at stake with the money that's in our bank accounts even right now. Lord, I just uh, pray that you would speak through your word, that we would find our hope in Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Jen Dahl, who writes for The Atlantic several years ago, Uh, wrote an article about the stories of those uh, people who have won the lottery. She kind of tracked down uh, the different stories of these people that had stumbled across great treasure, great money. And here's how she begins her article. She says, As America continues in its frenzy over the now $640 million jackpot up for grabs in tonight's Mega Millions lottery, one thing's clear, you probably don't actually want to win the the lottery. and, And then she says, we've collected the true terribly sad stories of lotto winners that show that winning the lottery, despite the seeming wonderfulness of having $600 million or more before taxes to your name, is not all that it's cracked up to be. In fact, what seems to be like an American dream, 
may actually be something of an American nightmare. Interestingly, the psychology that draws us to lotteries is the low risk factor. While you might win big, your life goes virtually unchanged if you don't. So there's not a ton to lose. What you might have to lose, at least according to a historical precedent, often comes after you win, at least for these people to whom the following occurred. And she shared story after story after story. I'll just read uh, a couple. Everything terrible happens that possibly can says Jack Whitaker of West Virginia, who was an already wealthy businessman when he won what was at the time the largest jackpot ever by a single ticket, garnering $314.9 million on December 25, 2002. A chain of awful events followed, including his car being broken into twice, first with $545,000 in cash, stolen, then later with $200,000 stolen and later recovered. A plot was revealed in which two club employees had planned to drug his drinks and to rob him. His granddaughter's boyfriend was found dead in Whittaker's home from an overdose. Whittaker's granddaughter was found dead at a male's friend's house after being reported missing the death was also ruled an overdose. Whittaker had a DWI. Whittaker uh, was sued by Caesars Atlantic City Casino for bouncing a $1.5 million uh, uh, check to cover gambling losses. Whittaker was sued by a woman who had previously sued him for not paying her money. He claimed thieves had stolen it all from him. And Whittaker's daughter was found dead. I wish I had torn up the ticket, Whittaker says. Another man, in June of 1997, a man named Bill, Billy Bob Harold Jr. took the $31 million Texas lottery jackpot. At first, all was great. Harold purchased a ranch. He bought a half a dozen homes for himself and other family members. He and it are he, his wife, and all the kids got new automobiles. He made large contributions to his church. If members of the congregation needed help, Billy Bob was there in cash, writes Steve McVicker in the Houston Press. Then suddenly, Harold discovered that his life was unraveling almost as quickly as it had come together. Everyone seemed family, friends, fellow worshipers, strangers, was putting the touch on him. He was spending and, His spending and lending spiraled out of control. In February, those tensions splintered his already strained marriage. And tragically, 20 months after winning the lottery, Harold committed suicide. And this is one of about 10 other uh, stories I read about. Another man won millions of dollars in the UK. And in a matter of eight years, he had spent it all on drugs and over a thousand prostitutes and lost his wife. His, his children disowned him. And I know that many of you are sitting there thinking, these people are stupid. They're dumb. If I win the lottery, I'm going to be wise. And the way I'll prove to you I'm wise is I won't lose it like most of them do. In fact, uh, they did a study uh, that winning in, the, are in, in Florida, uh, 70% of those who had won the lottery in the last several years, 70% of them had lost every last dime of their jackpot within five years. 70%. And you might be saying, well, I'd be wise. I would take it to good investors. I would put it where it's supposed to be. I would not let it ruin my life. And yet, should we be surprised 
Should we have so much confidence in ourselves if we were to win the lottery? 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. What? <laughs> with food and clothing, if contentment there is great gain. And then he says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. So let me ask you a question. How many of you would like many pangs? How many of you would like to wander away from Christ? How many of you would like to be plunged into ruin and destruction and into temptation and into a snare? And no one would say, I want that. And yet the Bible says, if you desire to be rich. Listen to me. If you desire to be rich or if you love money, that's what will happen to your life. These are not flukes. It happens to anyone who desires to be rich. Money itself is not evil. To have money is not evil to have it for yourself and keep it for yourself and store it up for yourself is evil. For it proves that you desire it and you love it and that you anchor your life into it. A few verses later in 1 Timothy 6.17, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn here with me. These three verses give us such a balanced understanding of what Scripture tells us about money. Here's what he says. As for the rich in this present age, and I'm telling you that if you live at the poverty level in America, you're in the 96th percentile of wealth in the entire world. So most of you are probably in the 98th percentile or 99th percentile of actual wealth. And so this text is written to you and to me. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That means proud. Because here's the temptation. If you have money and you have more than most, you probably tell yourself this narrative. I'm pretty wise. You know, I look at all the foolish ways other people handle money, and I look at the way I handle money, and I'm smarter than they are. I look at their work, work ethic, and then I look at my work ethic, and I, I work harder than they work. And I this and I that, and it's easy if you have success to become haughty. And to tell yourself a narrative as though you have all those things apart from God. And yet, where did you get your wisdom? How were you born into that family that taught you that work ethic? Where did you get your health that allowed you to continue in whatever line of work you were in? So as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So I'm here to tell you today, don't set your hopes, don't set your desires on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. 
Riches are uncertain and temporary. God is certain and eternal, and He'll never change. So set your hope on God who ritually provides us with everything to enjoy. You see that? You could say, well, is it wrong to ever enjoy uh, the money I make for myself to go on a vacation to do this or to do that or to have a hobby? Is that wrong? Not necessarily. In fact, God create, gives us stuff in order that we enjoy them with thanksgiving and give thanks to Him. But how does that joy come? It doesn't come by keeping for yourself. Because He says, to be, uh, He provides us with everything to enjoy there, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what we're going to be talking about. You might be surprised to know this, but the money that you have in your bank account, in your wallet, the possessions you own, that filthy lucre can actually be used and invested in heaven. You can make investments in heaven. And we're told in the scriptures that we're going to look at today is we're to store up investments in heaven with that which God has given us and true joy comes through being ready to share, to, be, to doing good works with your time, to be leaning in to other people. And last week, we basically covered, it's not going to be accord, exactly according to your notes, or two weeks ago, uh, four main points, biblical truths about money that I just listed in your notes just so you remember them. I'll try to refresh these in your memory. First, there's an, inseparable, there's an inseparable link between our money and our hearts. There's a link between your money and your spirituality. Your heart is going to go wherever your money goes. Because the way we express value or, or what's valuable in this world is money to get what we want. And so where you put it or what you do with it is going to tell you what you value. There's an inseparable link between your checkbook and your hearts, which it should just tell us, don't fool yourself. If, if you're not generous, if you're not giving to the kingdom of God, don't somehow write a narrative in your mind that you can justify and separate it because we looked at so many texts that just say wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And in a sense, it doesn't lie when you look at your checkbook. Second, we looked at we are, owner, we are not owners, but stewards. You don't have any money. You, in fact, don't even have your own soul. We looked at how Jesus said, said to the man who had a great crop, he says, I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store up treasure for myself so I can eat, drink, and be merry. And he said, fool, this very night your soul is going to be required back from you. You don't own your soul. You don't own your money. You're a steward of what God has given you, and we will give an account as to our faithfulness to Christ in our stewardship. So it's incredibly life-changing to remember I'm a steward, not an owner. Because what does a steward do? If you're going to manage someone's money, you want to talk to the person whose money it is and say, what do you want me to do with it? What do you value? And then you want to invest it well. 
You want to do well for the owner. Third, uh, we saw that our fundamental motivation to serve or to give is love for our master. We looked at the parable of the talents and the two that went and risked their talent because they saw their master was worth the work and effort and doubled it were commended as good and faithful servants. But the third one who buried it in the, in the ground, remember his view of the master? I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not. And his view of God or his master was that he wasn't worth it. The main motivation, we're going to talk about treasures in heaven today. We're even going to talk about rewards. That's not the main reason why you want to be found faithful with your giving. It's secondary. It's kind of like God can't help but be generous. God can't help himself from wanting to reward our service, even though we deserve nothing, we deserve hell. He purchased us with His own blood, and yet He's so generous, He gives to us, but the main motivation of the steward that's faithful is because they see the Master is worthy. They love Him. They want to do well for Him. And so Paul says things like this, 2 Corinthians 5.9, So whether we are at home, that means alive in the body, or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's the drive of Paul's life. I want to be found faithful. He commissioned me. Paul's commission maybe isn't the one you would want to hear. Remember what Ananias said to him after he was saved? Go tell Paul how much he must suffer for my namesake. Okay. I grab onto this. I want to please you, Christ. And so he lives this crazy life, giving his life away for the glory of Christ. The fourth principle is this. God rewards faithfulness, the faithfulness of our service, not the fruitfulness Paul says things like, I planted Apollos waters, but God gives the growth. If you don't win as many souls as Billy Graham, that's not the issue of whether you're, you please the master or not. It's faithfulness. He takes care of the fruitfulness. He wants servants that do their best for him and are faithful with what He has given them. Man, this thing's really wobbling. I can't touch it today. All right. Uh, today, we're going to look at one truth. Verse, or point five in your notes. This biblical truth about money. You can store up treasures in heaven by investing your money there. Now this is an incredible thing that the Scripture teaches us, that Christ teaches us. That you can store up treasures in heaven by investing your money there. I'm just going to tell you right now. There is no treasure in heaven that doesn't come from Christ. And what makes the treasure sweet is Christ. You don't, we don't become idolaters in heaven. Forgetting about Christ and loving the reward. In heaven, when there's no more sin or selfishness, as Christ rewards us, what do we do? We respond back with worship and service to Christ. So don't think we're pitting treasures that come from Christ's hands from the giver. No, they're, they're connected. The giver gets the glory. We don't worship the treasures in heaven. We get them and praise Christ for His amazing generosity. If you have your Bibles, I want to begin 
in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. Matthew 13, starting in verse 34, we have the a one-verse one parable. Jesus taught, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, when I was reading Randy Elkhorn's little book, The Treasure Principle, he kind of put flesh on this parable. He says, imagine a guy walking through a desert on a long journey uh, between villages, between towns. He's tired. He's got his staff. He's kind of plodding along. And all of a sudden, clunk. What was that? He goes to take a couple steps, but then his curiosity gets the best of him. He comes back. Clunk, clunk. He doesn't even know if he has the energy to kneel down and see what's there, but he decides, I'm going to look. And he starts to uncover this incredible treasure. And all of a sudden, energy flows into his life. And he buries the treasure and he starts to scheme. And all of a sudden, he's walking with a new step and he goes home and he goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell all that I have. It's going to be great because I'm going to buy the field. It says in his joy, he went and sold all that he had. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who comes along and finds this treasure and their life is never the same. All the value system they used to have, the farm back home, this and that and everything I'm trying to work up, sell it! Sell it! I found something far better! And he sells it and he goes and gets the treasure. And Jesus is saying, this is what it's like when you find me, the king, who is the king of the kingdom of God. All, all, all of a sudden, what you value and what you treasure changes. And the way you think about your life changes. And one of the questions I want to propose to you is how, since you have found Christ, if you have found Christ, has your life changed? How has your value changed? How, how have you in your joy been doing what seems to the world craziness with your possessions and with your money? How would someone look at your life and say, whoa, what are you doing? Jesus taught that we can store up treasures in heaven by investing our money there. Now, I kind of want to make a little parenthetical comment here. It's going to take about two minutes and we're going to come back to this point. So many things in the scripture are attention. You know, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Which one's true? Yes, they're both true. Well, how can they both be true? Yes, they're both true. 100%. I can show you 100 verses, both sides. They're true. If you can't wrap your head all the way around it, praise God. God's greater than we are. Doctrine after doctrine has tensions. And there's this tension in Jesus' teaching where he says that 
In the kingdom of heaven, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he seems to say this in a way that everything will be equal in heaven. That there won't be one in front of the other. If you're first and then you're going to be last, everyone's crossing the line at the same time. And Jesus tells us a parable, uh, explains this in a parable in Matthew uh, 19 and 20. Uh, Right after Jesus talked to the rich young ruler and he went away sad because Jesus told him to go sell all he has and he'll have treasure in heaven. And he said, oh man, I don't want treasure in heaven. I want treasure down here, so I'm going to go somewhere else. And he wasn't happy because no one who keeps for themselves is happy. That makes us miserable. But anyway, Peter says this. Then Peter said, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. You're going to have power, authority, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So receive a hundredfold. There's going to be a reward. And you're going to get the main thing, eternal life. Now, you have to get these two categories in your mind. I think part of what Peter's wondering is, man, we're doing pretty good. We left everything. What are we going to get? And then Jesus says this um, to him. And everyone, uh, or verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I think part of why he said that is it was hard for the disciples to watch new believers that hadn't suffered how they had become Christians. We heard them preaching Christ. Should we stop them? And Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And you guys were the first disciples, but don't despise those who come later and they might not ever suffer how you did. And then he tells this parable right away, linked to that statement in in chapter 20. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius uh, uh, a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Right away, the crack of dawn, hires this group. Comes back at... uh, Nine o'clock, hire some more. Comes back at noon, hire some more. Comes back at three, hire some more. And at the end of the day, he lines them all up and the master of the vineyard says, pay the ones you hired and only work for an hour first. And guess what they got paid? A denarius. The people that were hired in the morning are thinking, oh, this is awesome. We're going to get way more than we thought. Guess what they get? A denarius. And they're upset. And he says, don't I have a right to be generous however I would like? There's a sense where the thief on the cross who trusts Christ just for a moment repents of his sins and then dies. He is a full member of eternal life. He gets all of eternal life. And the the one who slaved for 40 years and was martyred also gets fullness of eternal life. So there's the principle that the Bible teaches that everyone who trusts Christ gets to be in God's presence fully. Eternal life. That's on this side of the tension. And then the Bible talks about rewards for faithful service. All right? You feel the tension? The Bible clearly teaches both of them. We're going to talk about this second one. Storing up treasures in heaven and reward the rest of our time this morning.
So, look with me at. I'm gonna. I'm gonna gonna go rapid fire here. You you actually don't don't need to turn with me yet if you don't want to. Uh, I just want you to feel the litany of te- texts that teach uh, the fact that you can lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Luke twelve fifteen. He said to them, "Take care, be on guard against all covetousness. For one life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions." And he told them a parable about the guy who builds barns. Right. He says to himself, I'll, I'll say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool this night, your soul is required of you. And, or, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself and is not rich towards God. So you have two options. You can take what God's given you to manage, and you can use it for yourself, which it has an expiration date. There's going to be a moment where it's going to be taken from you. It won't be yours. Or you can use it and be rich towards God. You love Him, and you manage it well, and you would not be called a fool. You'd be called wise. So we already looked at that. And then in Luke 12, um, uh, 32, fear not little flock for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't have to scheme to make sure that you're going to be taken care of. Yes, you're to work hard. Yes, you're supposed to be smart. No, you're not to worry. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there will your heart be also here's what jesus is saying it's not immoral to have a mercedes or some fancy car necessarily it's a it's a car It just might be dumb from an investing standpoint because you store up for yourself treasures on earth. It can be gone in a moment. It's not going to last. Or you can invest that same amount into the kingdom of God and it will last. Jesus is talking about wisdom with what we do with our money. Martin Luther says this, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, I still possess. That's the idea. You give it to God, He gives it back to you in heaven forever. Now you say, so what's my treasure going to be like in heaven? I don't know. It's going to be awesome. It... Uh, it might be responsibility. There, there's verses that seem to point to responsibility, but we're talking about heaven and Jesus is motivating by his own generosity that make the good transaction. Losing your life is actually gaining your life if you follow me. And so... We see in Matthew 10, 42, similar principle. Jesus says this, whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he'll by no means lose his reward. Does that mean he won't lose his salvation? No, we're not talking about eternal life. We're talking about rewards. You got to have two categories when the New Testament's talking about this. If you give a cup of cold water, the most insignificant thing in your Jesus can think about maybe, Jesus is going to notice. He's going to remember and it'll never be done in vain. It will be rewarded. It's it's an incredible thing that Jesus teaches. If If you feel like I have a mundane life that doesn't matter, it's just this and this and this and it's boring and I just can't wait 
till I get to heaven? Well, this is investing time. It matters what you do with your life. You love him, right? When he comes through that sky, you don't want to shrink back. You want to be like, yes, I knew it. I was putting my money there. I was putting my time there. I was putting my life there. And here he is. And now I don't look like a fool anymore. And now is when I get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful steward or servant. Well done. We don't have time today. 1 Corinthians 3, we could look at verses of believers who build with good materials and believers who build with bad materials. The metaphor is building a building. It'll be tested by fire. And those who built with wood, hay, and straw will be burned up. It says they'll be saved, but as one going through the fire, they'll receive loss in a sense. There's a sense of, When I stand before him, I'll admit that I wasted so much time and so much of God's resources, and it was worthless. No, you're not judged for those before the judgment seat of Christ. When was your sin judged? On the cross at Calvary, once and for all. We will give an account of our stewardship. Were you faithful with what I have given you? And anything you weren't, zoop, that goes away, gets burned up. Whatever you were for every Christian, it's going to be some things. You're going to be put up on the reward stand. God's going to reward you for it. Isn't that incredible? The judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. It's a place, it's not an act. The Bema is the podium in the Olympic Stadium in Rome where the person who gets a reward stands. Because when you think of the standing before the judgment seat of Christ, there's a sense of this is this act that takes place. What it is, is you take this high position up on the podium and whatever's left with your service to God, God in his generosity rewards you. And yes, you will give it back in praise and honor and worship Him for it. Matthew 6, 19, Sermon on the Mount. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, here's how you live your life. Don't miss this. I say it over and over and over again. This is stupid to live like this. Live like this. And we're going to end by looking at the parable that Scott read that maybe confused you. Maybe one of the most confusing parables in the scripture, but hopefully here in about really short amount of time, I can give you an idea what it means and we can leave praising God for uh, this teaching. So you have a parable that Jesus tells. There was a rich man who had a manager or a steward and, char- and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So the owner must have lived out of town. He got word his possessions were being wasted. And he called and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no lo- longer be manager. He says, I want to see the books. I want to see what you've been doing. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I, this is what I decided to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now this might seem weird to us, but this is a shame honor culture where if someone were to do something in your favor, in a sense, you owe it back to them. 
And because of the shame of not doing it, you're going to do it. And so here's what the guy does. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit quickly and write 50. Basically gave him a 20-month wages, average wage discount, huge discount. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. The ones who are in debt are thinking, this is, this is a great deal. Give me my pen right now. And then we read this. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For his shrewdness. Not for his lying, but for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Here's what Jesus is saying. Even the non-believers are worried when they're losing their job where they're going to sleep and what they're going to do. And so they scheme and they, they try to figure out a way where they can be taken care of in the future when their job goes away. And he's saying the sons of light have eternal dwellings waiting for them and the opportunity to look at what God's given them and to think what's the best way to buy the most amount of friends in heaven. I think that's what he's saying. And if you invest what God's given you in the gospel and in the kingdom of God and sinners come to trust Christ, you think you'll be excited to see grandma and mom and dad? How amazing is it going to be when one of the treasures you receive is this person that maybe you never even met on this earth, but because you were faithful with what God has given you, you get to spend eternity with that friend. Let me ask you a question. How much do you value your friends? A good friend. What kind of treasure would it be to know that I had an opportunity to be faithful or not faithful? I was faithful and God in his wisdom produced fruit and created life in this person and I get to spend in eternal dwellings time with this person. And Jesus is basically saying this. I'm amazed at you. You guys know eternal life is coming. I've told you that you can invest now, in eternal treasure, and the unbelievers are more scheming for things that are just going to pass away. So, be shrewd. Go home. Start praying. Think about your life. Think about your time. Think about your money. Think about, go read these verses. Meditate on them. Ask the question, why does Jesus teach this like eight times in the Gospel of Luke over and over and over and over again? You see, we've been let in on the most valuable information in the world. And according to most statistics in America, the richest Christians that have ever been on the face of the earth give less than 2% of their money away for gospel ministry. It's incredible. And it might be you. And by the grace of God, this is in His Word. And you're, you've been given the privilege of hearing this. Ask God. And here's why joy is going to come. 
Because if you store up for yourselves treasures on earth, every day gets sadder. Why? It's one day closer that you're going to lose this mounting heap that's growing over here. Right? I felt bad for rich old people that aren't saved. I must stink to know you're going to lose this any time. Right? But if you take that money, invest it in the kingdom of God, this heap might be shrinking, but you're putting it over here, and then you get told you're diagnosed with cancer. That's going to be hard. But guess where I've been investing? Guess what I've been planning on? Every day longer is more mounting joy because your heart is in heaven. You're one day closer to Christ. You're one day closer to eternity. So my prayer is, is that you have joy. You have never met a miserable, generous person. I would argue if you met a generous person that is truly generous with what they have, they will not be miserable. You want to know where we get the word miserable? Miser. The person who keeps it for themselves, like the rich young ruler, walks away sad. So my prayer is, is you don't hear these like, okay, I got to lose my life and get nothing. That's not what Jesus said. You give away that which you can't keep anyway, and you gain what you do not deserve. And it's amazing, his generosity, eternal life first, and then even rewards on top of that. Father, the only way we can know you, that we can be a part of your kingdom, is putting our faith in Jesus Christ. We know that because you loved us, you sent Jesus to die on the cross, to take on human flesh, to live 33 years of a perfect life, to go to a cross, to bear our sins, to die under the wrath of God so that you could give us a free gift of salvation. Father, I pray that everyone here would know you in that way. Lord, I pray that everyone here would know that they can't earn a spot in heaven. We are only saved by grace. But Lord, we do desire to be faithful. We do love you. Help us grow. Help us challenge each other. Help us encourage each other. Help us live this new life of joy saying, now my treasure's here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.